So I want to begin my time with you today by sharing a verse which doesn't come from Galatians. It actually comes from the book of James. You don't have to turn. We'll put it on the screen for you. It's James chapter 1, verse 17, which says this, Every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It's from above and it comes down to us from the Father. What James is saying is that God is a good God and that he loves to give good gifts to people. If you believe that, would you say amen? amen. It really is true. God is a good God and he loves to give good gifts to us. And so today, in our time together in Galatians 3, what I hope to do is to help you discover three of the greatest gifts, maybe the greatest three gifts that God has ever given to the human family. Is that a bit of a stretch? Is that maybe I'm, I'm, I'm embracing a superlative there a little too freely? Maybe you would find another gift that you would say is greater. But I'm going to tell you from our passage in Galatians 3 what I think are the three greatest gifts that God has ever given to us. Now let me just re bring you up to speed. If you're new to Brookstone and you haven't been here for the last few weeks as we've been studying through the first three chapters of Galatians, we're spending this whole summer in the book of Galatians. We'll finish it up at the end of August, so we're about halfway through it right now. But essentially what we've learned over the last month or six weeks is that there is only one way to be made right with God. There's only one way to be made right with God. Now, let me be clear to say that all of us, before we are made right with God, we are wrong with God, meaning that we are in a broken relationship. We are not in fellowship with him. We are distant from him. And in fact, the Bible says that before we are made to be right with him, we are abiding under his judgment. Now, why is that the case? It's the case because we're sinners. All of us are imperfect, fallen, broken people. And the truth is we can even be rebellious kinds of people. The Bible says all of us have sinned. We've all come short of God's glory. Therefore, we must be made to be right with God. Well, Paul says in Galatians there's only one way that you can be made right. And that is that we are made right with God by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. Let me show it to you. It's chapter 3, verse 11. We've seen it in numerous verses, but here's where we ended last week. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, but that no man is justified. Stop right there. Do you remember what the word justified means? It means to be declared to be innocent, to be declared by God to be innocent, even though we're not. We're not innocent. We're guilty. We're all guilty. But when we are justified, God declares us, it's a judicial term, he declares us innocent. And then he accepts us in a relationship with himself on the basis of our innocence, which he has proclaimed over us. If we are going to be, verse 11 says, justified or declared innocent before God, it will not be because we kept the law of God. That's verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. Could it be any more clear? That you cannot be made to be right with God by following commandments, by keeping rules. That will never make a person right with God. He goes on in verse 11 to say, For the just, 
That is, those who are justified shall live. That means they will live eternally. Those who are justified and will live with God eternally will be justified by faith. For the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. So here's Paul's point, that there is one way to be made right with God, and it is only by believing, by putting our faith uh, in Christ. Now, we learned this lesson last week really, really clearly by, by listening to Paul's genius argument as he went back to God's promise to Abraham. And if you were here the last few weeks, you'll remember that we've learned that, that in, these, in these Galatian churches, the legalizers, the Judaizers, kept going back to Moses. They kept going back to the law of God that was delivered through Moses. And they kept saying, if you're going to be saved, you've got to keep the law. If you're going to be saved, you've got to be uh, more Jewish. If you're going to be saved, uh, you've got to follow the dietary laws. If you're going to be saved, you've got to honor the Jewish festivals. You've got to be- become a, one who follows the law of Moses in order to be saved. So what Paul does in order to refute that argument is he goes before Moses. He goes all the way back to Abraham and he says that God made a promise that he would give us salvation not by keeping the law, but hundreds of years before the law ever came, he promised us salvation by faith, by believing. And he makes this argument very articulately in the book of Galatians. Now, the other thing that we learned last week, and I'll quit reviewing and get on to where we need to go this week, but I want to remind you that Paul made it clear to us in our our time together last week that the object of our faith promised to Abraham was the person of Jesus Christ. What we are to believe in in order to be justified or who we are to trust in in order to be made right with God is that we are to trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the only one, because of what he has done for us, he's the only one who can ever make us right with God. God said that this promise of eternal life would be made to Abraham and his descendants. And, well, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm not a descendant of Abraham until I trust in Jesus. Let me take you back up to chapter 3 and verse number 7. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Do you know, therefore, that they which are of the faith, they which have trusted in Jesus, those are the children of Abraham. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, or Abraham's sons or daughters, his offspring, and heirs according to the promise. Here's, Here's Paul's point. That if you're Jewish or Gentile, if you're rich or poor, If you're bond or free, that's what verse 26, 27, 28 talks about. If you're male or female, it doesn't matter. That every person, in order to have a right standing with God, must do this one thing. And that one thing is to trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only thing that will work. Now, we ended last week by raising the question that Paul raised, assuming that his opponents, the legalizers, the Judaizers, were going to raise this question. We ended last week by talking about this question of what is the purpose of the law? Look at it in chapter 3 and verse number 19. Wherefore then serves the law? What's the purpose for which the law 
was given. So Paul spent three chapters making the point, keeping the law will never save you. You must trust in Jesus. And so he assumes that this question will come, well, then why did God give us a law in the first place? And here's what we're going to discover in his answer today. He's going to answer this question for us today. And we're going to discover in his answer that the law of God is one of the three greatest things that God has ever given One of the three greatest gifts God's ever given to us. Let's read about it. I'm going to begin in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 19. The Bible says, Wherefore then serves the law, or what is the purpose for which the law was given? He answers, It was added because of transgressions or because of sins, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. That was Moses. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? No, God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, then truly righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded or convicted every person under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were in custody. We were kept under, or we were in custody to the law, closed up under the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. You should underline that if you have a pen in your hand. Underline, the law was our schoolmaster. It means our disciplinarian to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I promised you that we were going to see the three greatest gifts that God's ever given us, and that the first of those is the law. So if you're you're a, um, a note taker, I want you to write this down. Let's just get it on a piece of paper. God gave us the gift of the law. When the question is asked, why did God give us a law, we would begin answering it by saying, what's a gift? God has given to us the gift of the law. One of the things you'll notice uh, as you read through chapter number three is that Paul, who's been making the argument that we're saved by faith, not by keeping the law, saved by grace, not by works, he frames this debate in chapter number three in two questions. The first one is in verse number 19. I've already mentioned it. What good is the law? What purpose is the law? That's the first question. The second question he asks is in verse number 21 where he says in verse 21, is the law then against the promise? In other words, is the law in conflict with God's promise? And his answer is no. Now let me, let me take just a minute and, um, and make sure that you understand what we mean when we talk about the law of God. We're not talking about you know, church rules. What do we mean when we're talking about the law of God? What I really want to do is start out with kind of a 10,000 foot view and then we'll come down much more narrow and much more specific, okay? So here's the first thing I would say. If you want to know what the law of God is, you could take your Bible and you could divide it between the Old and the New Testaments and you would take the first 39 books of your Bible and that 
would be called the law. Now that's broadly kind of a sweeping statement because surely not everything in the Old Testament is law, but we could say that the law is contained in those pages in the Old Testament. Testament. Very often, Jesus talked about the law and the prophets and how that he would put scripture, Old Testament scripture together and, uh, and lump it as one category. So when we talk about the law, we're talking about what is found in the Old Testament. But to be more precise, to, to get a little more exact definition, we wouldn't take all 39 books of the Old Testament. We would just take the first five books of the Old Testament. These are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are called the books of the law, or they're called simply the law. In fact, they're called the Torah in Hebrew, and the word Torah means the law. So when you want to know what the law of God is, if you want to get specific, you're talking about the books of Moses. And then if you wanted to drill down even deeper than that, you would find the specific commands that are within those five books of the Torah. There are 613 of them. They are called uh, the the mitzvahot. Uh, These are the, the specific 613 commands. Now, by the way, do you, can you recite the 613 commands? Why don't we all stand to our feet and let's recite them together? Would you like to do that? Now, the truth is you, you wouldn't know nearly uh, all of the 613. Now, the truth is most Jewish people wouldn't know the 613 commands either. But they're very, very important. These are 613 commands found within the first five books of the Bible. And then if you wanted to drill down even more precisely and get a good summary of the law, then you would uh, list the Decalogue or what we call the Ten Commandments. So those are easier to remember 10 than 613, right? And and so the Ten Commandments would be the more uh, limited in the summary of the law. Now listen to what the Bible says in Exodus 24 in verse number 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and stay here so that I may give to you the tablets of stone with the law, that's the Torah, I'll give you the law, and I'll give you the commandments that I have written. Those are the mitzvah. The word mitzvah is the word for law. In fact, does the word mitzvah sound familiar to you though you don't speak Hebrew? We, we, if you have Jewish friends, uh, maybe you have, you have uh, watched them or participated with them in the celebration of their son or daughter's bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. It's when a child becomes 13 years of age, a boy uh, goes to his or has his bar mitzvah. And the word bar means son and mitzvah means commandment or law. So he's the son of the commandment. And in Jewish culture, in Jewish religion, in Judaism, when a boy becomes 13, he becomes responsible for his actions. He is now to handle the word of God and live in obedience to the commandments. God says in Exodus 24, 12, I'm going to give you the Torah and the mitzvah, the law and the commandments. And I have written the law and the commandments, this verse says, for their instruction. Everybody listen carefully. God said, I've given the law for your instruction. 
And so let me give you a, a definition, all right? I'm, this is the way that I would summarize all that we've just said and define what the law is. The law is God's collective set of instructions for how people are to relate to him and to behave toward one another. That's the law. In the law, God tells us how we are to relate to him and how we are to behave toward one another. Doesn't that fit with our contemporary understanding of what a law is? A law tells us how to behave. It tells us what we can do, what we can't do. Maybe you would have said of your father, he was such a disciplinarian. My daddy would lay down the law. And we understood that meant this is what you do, this is what you cannot do, and there are consequences attached to your disobedience and blessings attached to your obedience. All right, so the law is God's uh, law and commandments which tell us how to relate to him and how to behave toward one another. Now, there are four things in this passage in Galatians 3 that Paul tells us about the law. Let me give them to you really, really quickly, okay? Number one, write it down. It is to say that the law is in concert with God's promise, not in conflict. The law is in concert with God's promise and not in conflict. This is the question of verse number 21. Is the law, he asks, in conflict? Do the law of God and the promise of God, the path of Moses and the path of Abraham, do they conflict? He says, no, they don't conflict at all. In fact, they go together. This is why he uses the verbiage in verse 19, wherefore then serves the law, it was added. You see that word? It was added. The word means it was put alongside the promise that God made to Abraham. So God promised eternal life by faith. Then four or 500 years later, Moses comes and puts the law alongside of it. And he did that not to put it over the promise or to fight against the promise, but he did that to emphasize the need for the promise. That's the first thing that he tells us about the law. It is in concert with the promise, not in conflict. Number two, the law was given because of sin. That's verse number 19. What is the purpose of the law, he asks in verse number 19. Here's his answer. It was given because of transgressions, because of sins. Listen, let's be honest. If there were no such thing as sin, there would be no need for a law. If every person loved God supremely, we wouldn't have to be commanded to love God supremely. Do you follow me? If everyone was kind and considerate and thoughtful of other people, if everyone was merciful and helpful, we wouldn't need, if everybody was honest, we wouldn't need laws. So God gave his law because we're sinners, and specifically to the nation of Israel, he gave them the law to say, I'm going to tell you how to live as my people. If you follow the history of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they went directly. I mean, like, a, like an arrow shot out of a bow. They went from Egypt through the Red Sea and made a straight shot for Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And it was there, as soon as they got there, God called Moses up to the mountain and gave him the law. And the reason God did it is because he said to them, look, you're my people. I have redeemed you. And if you're my people, you're going to live the way I tell you to live. <laughs> so if you belong to me, 
God says to them, you're not going to worship anything that you want and you're not going to lie and cheat and steal and take what doesn't belong to you and rape and plunder. That's not the way you're going to live like the other nations. If you're my people, you're going to live the way I say to live. He gave the law because we're sinners and otherwise we wouldn't live that way. Here's the third reason he gave the law. It's in verse number 23. He gave the law to hold us all in custody. Verse number 23 is this amazing verse. He says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. It means we were held in custody to the law. It means to be imprisoned by the law. Why does the law imprison a person who's never come to faith in Jesus? If you're ready for the answer, say amen. Because every person is guilty. And that's what you do with guilty people. You take them into custody and you hold them in custody until the sentence is passed. Well, we're all guilty before God. And so his law condemns our actions and then takes us into custody under his condemnation, awaiting the execution of our sentence, which the Bible says from beginning to end is eternal death or separation from God. This is what the law did. It was the purpose for which God gave the law, to hold us in custody because we are guilty. It condemned our actions and assured us of our eternal death sentence. One more thing he says about the law. You'll see this in verse number 24. It is that the law was given to be our teacher. Now, I asked you to underline this earlier. It's the word schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster. It really means our disciplinarian. Very often when we think of teachers, we think of a sweet little teacher in a classroom, very kind and tender. It's not the word here. The word here means a disciplinarian. It's it's someone who does that when you do wrong. He says the law was our disciplinarian. So the law spelled out the measure of what was right. And then when we violated it, the law went. I almost brought a, a ruler today like Teacher would slap your hand with the, back in the old day when some of us went to school. Not today, probably. But, but the, I started bringing a yardstick so that it would say, here's the measure, we don't meet it. And so the yardstick pops us. And so the law just keeps going, you're wrong. That's wrong. Don't do that. You're guilty. You're violating that law. That's what it does. And so what happens is by taking us into custody, by showing us our sin, It brings us to a place of knowing, I can't do this. I can't live up to God's requirement. So then it points me to the way that God made for me to be right with him, which is through Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus. And so it was our teacher, our disciplinarian, to bring us to Christ. He uses the same uh, idea, a little different metaphor uh, in chapter 4, verse number 2, when he talks about being under tutors and governors and those that would point us to Jesus. So here's what the law does. The law was given by God in order to address the problem of sin in our lives, in order to correct us where we've been wrong, to condemn us under our guilt, or under, its, uh, under our guilt, and then to point us to Jesus so that we might trust in him for salvation. That is the purpose of the law. Now, All of those purposes that I've just mentioned are all temporary. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. Amen. Don't miss this. They're temporary. 
They're temporary in the sense that all of those reasons for, for the law are fulfilled and completed when we come to faith in Jesus, right? They serve their purpose when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, you see this in the text. Look with me in verse number 19. He says, wherefore, uh, what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until, it was temporary, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It's a reference to Jesus. Look at verse number 23. But before faith came, or before we came to faith in Christ, we were kept under the law. When? We were kept under the law until we had our faith in Christ. Look at verse number 25. But after faith has come, in other words, until faith came, we were under the, the uh, law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Here's my point. That God gave this gift of the law in order to condemn our sin and to point us to Christ. But when we come to Christ, those purposes are fulfilled. So it brings up the question that some of you have been asking me. In fact, I've gotten texts, emails, and personal face-to-face questions, this very question. Well, then what purpose does the law have in the life of a believer right now? Have you thought about it? Are you under obligation to keep the Ten Commandments now? Are we, as New Testament Christians, under obligation to the Old Testament law? What role does the law play in our lives as Christ followers? You need to know that that question is typically answered in one of two extremes. One is the extreme of legalism. That's what Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians. The legalism extreme says, yes, you have to keep the law. You can't be a Christian if you don't keep the law. The law is required upon you, and it's impossible for you to be right with God without keeping the law. That's legalism. That's extreme, it's incorrect, it's wrong. There's another extreme, though, on the other side. And that extreme, I gave you this word last week, is antinomianism. That's a big word, here's what it means. It means to be against the law. That's the extreme where you say, I'm not responsible for any of the laws. I'm under grace, I'm a Christian. I don't have to keep any laws. I can do anything I want. Some people believe that. That's an extreme, that is not true either. And in fact, Paul doesn't endorse either one of those answers. Paul would teach us that the answer would come somewhere in the middle with balance. In fact, let me me ask that question or get you to consider the question, what role does the law of God from the Old Testament play in my life? Consider it in light of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Listen to what that verse says. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much scripture? Shout it out. All Scripture. Just the New Testament? No. All Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Does that mean the books of Moses? Does that mean uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments? Yeah. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all Scripture is profitable. It's good for me. For doctrine, it teaches me what's right. For reproof, it shows me what's wrong. For correction, it turns me in the right direction. For instruction, it instructs me in how to live a righteous life. So it's not true to say, I'm a Christian, the law has no bearing in my life. What I would suggest to you is that the role of the law in the life of a believer today is that the law reveals to us the nature of God. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. 
The law reveals the nature of God. The law tells us something about the lawgiver. And so if I want to know what God is like, if I want to understand how God, how righteous and holy God is, I understand it when I see his laws, his commands. And when I recognize how holy he is, then those commands instruct me, they inform me in how to live a life that is pleasing to that God. That's its role in my life. So the law says, as an example, thou shalt not kill. You shall not murder. That's a law in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. That is the law of God. Am I under obligation to obey that law? Well, sure I am. I, I, I need to know that I, if I want to be pleasing to God, I don't need to be out killing people, right? I'm not a murderer. But then Jesus said, by the way, don't even let hate rise up in your heart. So back away from it. And don't hate. And then he said, by the way, don't even just not hate, but love your enemies. So the law tells me what God is like and instructs me how to live in a way that pleases him. If you understand, would you say amen? Here's the way I would, I would just summarize it for you. It is that the law is not redemptive for any person. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, doesn't matter. The law is not redemptive. It will not save you. But it is instructive as it points us to Jesus, who is the Redeemer. So one of the greatest things God has ever given to us is the law. Not so that we could keep it and be saved, but so that we would know what God is like, we would know what we are like, and we would call out for his salvation. Now, I told you I was going to give you the top three gifts that God has given us. In my closing couple of minutes, let me give you the last two real quickly. Number one, not only did God give us the gift of his law, but secondly, he gave us the gift of his son, the gift of his son. Now, you would agree with me that this is a greater gift, I hope, because it is a greater gift. In fact, he calls the law in this passage the rudimentary, elemental things of the world. Look at it, read with me chapter four, verse number three. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the law. That's what he's referring to as the law. But he calls it in verse number three, the elements of the world. It means the rudimentary, elementary principles, rule keeping. We were in bondage to that. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. Do that. And it's very rudimentary, very elementary a way of relating to God. He's going to tell us in chapter 4, now God's given us a much better way to relate to him, but that's what it was like before we came to faith in Jesus. But look at verse 4. But, I'm in chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was, was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Here's Paul's beautiful point. It is that in Moses, God gave us a great promise that we're saved by faith. And in, I'm sorry, in Abraham. And in Moses, he came alongside. And in Moses, he said, now this is the way that you know what I'm like and how to live a life that pleases me. But then in Jesus, he gave us the perfect redeemer who had kept the law so that he could give us the gift of eternal life. Verse number four says, but when the fullness of time was coming, at just the right time, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Do you know how important that is? That Jesus was born of a woman, no earthly father. He was divinely conceived, but he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. She gave birth to him. He was completely human. 
And had he not been, he could not be our Savior. But being completely human, he then lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, taking away the condemnation of the law. And yet he goes on to say he was made under the law, that is that he was subservient to it, living in obedience to it. He was then crucified and raised, proving himself to be the son of God so that he could be both man and God, fulfilling the law and removing its curse. So the commands that we violated and were condemned for violating, Jesus never violated and he removed the condemnation because he lived it perfectly. And the law that held us in custody because we were guilty has been satisfied. And by faith, the guilty can be set free. Now, he gave us the gift of his son because we could never live up to the gift of his law. The last thing that Paul tells us in this passage is that then God gave us the gift of his spirit. You'll see this beginning in verse number six. And because you are sons... God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, which means father. We call God father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But I just wanted to touch on it this morning because having given us the law that we could not live up to, having given us a great promise in Abraham, God then gave us his son so that we could be made righteous and inherit the promise God made to Abraham. But then he said, and this is what was going on in Galatia, he says, don't go back now to the law. Now that you're a son of God, don't go back and start keeping those elementary rules again, trying to relate to God by the law. You have something far better. It's the third greatest gift. And that is that you have the spirit of God dwelling within you. So you no longer relate to God by keeping his rules. Now you relate to God by his spirit who dwells within you and you live in fellowship with God. And we'll see in the coming weeks how the spirit of God produces within us a life that is in alignment with his law. A life that lives to please him like the law prescribes, but not because we're keeping the rules, but because we've been redeemed and the spirit of God is empowering that life. So we don't live in the letter, the keeping the rules. We live in the spirit. Now, let me just close by saying this to you. Every single person in the sound of my voice today has received the first great gift, the gift of the law. You've got it. You've heard it. You you know of it. I've talked to you about it today. God has given you a gift in the law. And that law has a purpose. It's to tell you that God is holy and you're not, and that you cannot live up to God's standards. And it is to point you to Christ. Whether you've received the second gift, the gift of salvation through his son, or the third gift, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit, I don't know. But I, will know that, I do know this, that if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior this morning, gifts number, one, uh, gifts number two and three will be given to you in an instant if you'll trust in Christ.